Hello, my name is Tim Schwartz and welcome to the Life After Blindness podcast. This week, I'll be joined by Sean Priest to discuss recent accessibility updates in Pinterest, as well as whether lawsuits have an effect on the accessibility of major websites. And then we'll talk about haptic gloves used in a virtual reality environment to enable the blind and visually impaired to see major works of art. I will also interview the developers of the iOS keyboard app FlickType, and then later I will share another Tim's tech tip, where this week I will show you how to get started with Braille screen input on iOS. This is episode number 26, and your life after blindness journey continues right now. Hello and welcome to Life After Blindness, the podcast where we are dedicated to the exploration of an enabled life with blindness. I'm your host, Tim Schwartz, and I want to thank you very much for taking the time to listen to the show. As always, if you have questions or comments for me, you can send emails to tim at lifeafterblindness.com. And of course, you can find the show notes for this episode by visiting lifeafterblindness.com slash 26. That's lifeafterblindness.com slash 26. There is quite a bit that I want to share with all of you this week, but I wanted to start off first by saying that I will not be sharing a Because of My Blindness story this week, just because there's so many other things to get to. However, you can still definitely send in your Because of My Blindness stories. Email those to me, either in written form or an audio file, which is preferred, or you can send me a message on the social media app Vorail. You can send a private message to me there. My name is Tim Schwartz, or you can look for me on Twitter and Facebook. On Facebook, of course, just look for Life After Blindness. And on Twitter, I'm at Labcast, L-A-B-C-A-S-T. I look forward to hearing your Because of My Blindness stories so that we can share them on upcoming episodes of Life After Blindness. And now let's get right into it with this week's news. And joining me for the news this week is actually quite a busy man. I'm very lucky to have him here because he's always so busy. He is a co-host on the Audio Pizza podcast, as well as the RNAB Tech Talk show in the UK and Double Tap Canada on AMI-audio, of course, in Canada. And he's here with me on Life After Blindness to do some tech-related news. He is Sean Priest. Sean, welcome back to Life After Blindness. Hey, good to be back, Tim. It's just that I'm busy always talking to you. I can't get away from you. It's like having a stalker. I love it. <laughs> yeah, you, you would love having a stalker. That would be that would be you. Well, in Audio Pizza, you get away from me, except for those couple times that I've snuck on and, and joined the conversation. That's true. So, That's my own so personal space. It's your, your personal space until you guys are like, hey, Tim, we, we, we need another voice. So I... I <laughs> proudly hop in there but no you're you are definitely very busy and uh i am happy to have you here but yeah we're we're always seeming to be talking with each other but that's a good thing and as we always seem to do we're going to talk some technology this week the last couple of weeks with maria johnson from girl gone blind i've been talking about all kinds of different topics from sports and uh you know tech and and just you name it we've been talking about it but this week i thought since you were going to be here we'll, we'll cover some tech-related things. So first of all, I want to talk about a story that actually had popped up earlier in the year with some updates that this company had done. And then recently I saw another article talking about kind of the reason and rationale behind what they've done. And that's about Pinterest, the social media network Pinterest. Basically, as the, the mashed together term or word implies, you pin things of interest to almost a virtual social media board. So whether you're pinning recipes or how 
to things, DIYs, whatever it is, you pin these things to your profile. And earlier this year, Pinterest discovered that they weren't quite that accessible for the visually impaired. Now, this app and this system is a very visual social media network, of course, because you're pinning a lot of pictures and videos and things, but they felt that there was more they could do. And so they updated their text and their buttons and the layout and the lists and everything to make it as accessible with voiceover and screen readers as they possibly could. And recently there was an article, Sean, that talked about how they feel and felt that they could open up their platform to the blind and visually impaired. Yeah. Um, how long has it been running, the Pinterest service? I mean, look, I, I hate to be down on things because this is a positive story. This this guy has come out and said, we want to be my, more diverse. Uh, we know we're letting users down, a certain section of users down, and we are going to do things about it. So from that point of view, it's so positive, and it's, uh, it seems to be a theme uh, in lots of mainstream services now. Accessibility does matter. Of course it does. But I've got to say, from my own, let me be uh, totally um, outright here, Pinterest didn't interest me at all because it was <laughs> it did seem like it was going to be just you know very visual it's almost like scrapbooking that's right I don't really have a use for that I, I uh, maybe if I was doing more research which obviously I don't do for any of my shows <laughs> Tim I rely on you for doing all that stuff um, yes but maybe there would be a, a use for it there but for me I don't have an interest in this anyway but the very fact that they've recognized the accessibility is lacking and they're going to do something about it, of course, is a positive thing. But I don't know. I, I, I don't know how good this service is and how much of a demand there is for the visually impaired to use this service. But that's not to say it shouldn't be accessible. Of course, it should be. Absolutely. And I know you're not much of a social media guy. I mean, you have Facebook and Twitter accounts and, and, and you, never you know, use them. Correct. Have I was gonna say you have been on there well once or twice in your life, but yeah, you you don't really use them all that much, and I wouldn't expect you to use something like Pinterest. And honestly, I I think I agree that a lot of blind or visually impaired people aren't gonna use Pinterest. That being said, I have logged into it since they've done all these accessibility updates, and it is quite accessible. So especially for somebody who has some low vision, you know, you can see some uh, this this visual medium of Pinterest could be appealing. You may still want to be able to do something if you have some vision, even if you have no vision whatsoever, the categories and the things that are listed and, and the how-tos and the recipes and all the other things that you can go in there and, and pin are now much more accessible to where you can access these things. It's not for everybody, like you said, where social media in general is not for everybody, but it is nice to see something like Pinterest saying, you know what, we're going to make this accessible. We've seen this with Facebook and Twitter before them. Instagram, of course, a lot of social media uh, platforms have made things accessible and apps in general have been really working hard to make things accessible. And we talked about that last week when Maria Johnson was here again. We talked about Skype version eight, where earlier in the year, they totally broke Skype. It was awful. <laughs> where, I mean, now it's buttons, just terrible. Links, yeah. and <laughs> it went from awful to terrible. But they're saying with Skype version eight that they are going to get back to labeling buttons properly and offering proper keyboard shortcuts and things like that. So they are committed to that. So it's nice to see even when they made the mistake of breaking it, they said, okay, we made the mistake, let's get it fixed. And that seems to be a theme with a lot of these apps, not just blind specific apps, but mainstream with Pinterest and Skype and, and a lot of others. Yeah, definitely. Accessibility is becoming part of the planning process now. Now, I still think to, to break accessibility like they did, I still think that's, that's really bad. You know, ex accessibility should it be is. part of 
okay, does this work before we put this out? Because if it doesn't work, it's not ready for public release. Simple as that. Now, I've got Skypay on, and maybe this is down to my familiarity with the desktop uh, environment. You know, hit the Alt button, you get your menu bar up, things like that. And the way this works, it just feels clunky and unresponsive. But, as I said, it could just be, this is a new way of doing things, this whole new app layout. So, it may be a case, once you get used to it, it's fine. I'm maybe just too old. I'm the grumpy old man of Skype. <laughs> um, but, yeah, look, again, accessibility is being thought about. Before, we could, we'd be shouting about trying to get this software made accessible. And now, it's it's actually being thought about straight off the bat which is a fantastic thing we'll have to wait and see how how well it's implemented that's the main thing absolutely it is all about implementation and whether it's useful and viable for us and speaking of shouting about getting things accessible thank you for that segue you're welcome <laughs> there have been not just this year but in the last several years there have been a lot of lawsuits especially here in the united states where we have the americans with disabilities act and other similar acts and laws uh, around the world in the uk and canada and beyond and in the united states especially uh, you say sometimes well gosh people get so lawsuit happy everybody's sue happy they're always just suing for this and that <laughs> but but that being said there are times where lawsuits can be very helpful and when it comes to the americans with disabilities act when you find things in general that aren't accessible whether it's a building or facility of some kind a website an app a service whatever it is if it's not being made accessible and you've done everything you possibly can working with somebody to make it accessible, sometimes lawsuits may be necessary. And that's happened once again here in the States, Dunkin' Donuts, the, the popular donut chain here in the United States. And I believe there are Dunkin' Donuts around the world. I think you might have them in the big cities there in the UK. I think so, yeah. Yeah, and uh, and and we'll have to talk with our friend Stephen Scott because if there's donuts involved, he'll know about he'll it. He'll find it. <laughs> so he'll find them if there's donuts somewhere. But um, but they recently had been sued, and the plaintiff actually won. Dunkin' Donuts was found guilty of not having their website be accessible for screen readers. And this is just one example in a long chain of different websites, whether it's been restaurants or other online businesses that aren't making sure that their websites are accessible when it comes to a screen reader being able to navigate it. So we're talking about headings being on there properly for different sections of the site, buttons being labeled, links being properly labeled, menus being accessible. All these kind of things on a website need to be coded or done in a certain way for a screen reader to understand them. And this has been kind of a trend lately, Sean. Absolutely. And a fantastic trend. This is ridiculous that a, a, a large company like Dunkin' Donuts haven't got an accessible website. In this day and age, it's so easy to make a website accessible. What it comes down to is ignorance. You know, if you don't have the headers set up, if you just put images up there instead of uh, readable, editable text, it's laziness and it's not being interested. That's absolutely right, Sean. It's so easy nowadays to make your website accessible. You can label graphics very easily with tags now. Making links understandable is, is not really all that hard. Labeling buttons, all these kind of things are not difficult. Putting in headers, I mean, literally, you, you take the text that you want to bracket the header around, and it's it's literally a few short characters. So it's not all that bad and all, not all that hard to make a website accessible. And you're right, a company like Dunkin' Donuts, you would have thought, 
well, wouldn't they have already had this accessible? But that being said, I think it was a year or two ago, McDonald's was in the same boat with this. So even a big company like McDonald's can can be taken to court over something like this and, and be made to make their website accessible. So if it could happen to McDonald's or Dunkin' Donuts, it could happen to anybody. Yeah, as they should be. These companies should be held responsible because there is no excuse. Now, with saying that, there is a caveat to this. It does rely on the common sense of the legal system, and I know that's always the dangerous to rely on. But <laughs> yeah. these these massive companies like this, there is no excuse. They've got the resources to do it. Now, the smaller companies, maybe independent companies. Um, now, I still think, as it is so easy with things like WordPress and Squarespace and, and whatever, you know, the, the content management systems to create websites where the accessibility is in there from the start. I think it is uh, still, it should be expected to get accessibility, but I think there does need to be some common sense in that, okay, what needs to be accessible here? Can it be made accessible? And do they have the resources to make it accessible? So, um, you know, I, I do have a slight concern that every single website out there, well, that should be accessible. Well, some things you cannot make accessible. Um, but things like Dunkin' Donuts or, or something like that, I mean, there's absolutely no excuse. It's just laziness and ignorance. That's right. And for it to go this far where they had to go through an entire court process and be found guilty, it's amazing to me that it even went that far. I believe McDonald's even settled out of court, if I'm remembering correctly. I don't think they even went the whole way. How much would that have cost? The, the legal costs alone, they could have put that into right. getting a web developer in to make it accessible. Absolutely ridiculous. Oh, I'm getting annoyed. Let <laughs> me get you off on a rant. Uh-oh. Well, why don't we set that story aside then, because I'll get into something that I know you may want to rant about, because it didn't sound to me when we discussed this before that you were all too thrilled about this next story. Although I think it's interesting and fascinating, can be helpful. So, so we'll, we'll debate this in a moment. But we will see. Yeah. We will see. There is a story out of Prague at an art museum there in Prague, and if no one's ever been to Prague, oh, Prague is so nice. I, I was there 21 years ago when I had vision, and it was it was very nice. So, anyway, that aside, the art museum in Prague has a new initiative for the blind and visually impaired, where they have taken three particular pieces of art. I believe they were just three statues. And they laser scanned them so that they can then be used in a virtual reality simulator with haptic gloves. So basically what happens is you put on these haptic gloves and with the over a thousand and some vibration points that are within these haptic gloves, you feel as if you're touching the artwork. You feel like you're actually touching the sculpture as you move your hands around. You can feel you know, all around it in a 3D type environment. If there's little crevices or, or anything, you can feel Steady. into those. And you can uh, you know, feel the different parts of the statue. I'm trying <laughs> to get through this. Um, and, uh, and be able to actually feel what it would really feel like. Now, I've had a similar experience here where I live. The art museum near my house actually has a specific toy for the blind and visually impaired, but you get to feel certain pieces of art. They've selected certain pieces that you are actually allowed to touch, but you have to put on gloves in order to touch it. And there is a, a person there that's doing the tour, guiding the tour that stands with you as you're feeling the art. And then they, of course, explain to you and talk with you about what that art is and how it was made and, and et cetera, et cetera. So I have gotten to do that from that kind of practical standpoint, but never with haptic gloves. I think this is really fascinating. I think that this could be the one thing that VR could be great for, for the blind and visually impaired. Other people have talked about using uh, augmented reality or virtual reality for mobility training, orientation training, things like that. But I think a virtual experience in a museum 
could be a really interesting use for this technology for us. What say you, Sean? Well, I think it's a terrible idea, Tim. You weren't expecting that, I know, but... <laughs> Look, the technology, the whole virtual reality and haptic feedback, these gloves, which give you the sensation of touch, amazing, interesting technology. But this use case for me makes absolutely no sense. So they spend the time laser scanning these incredible sculptures and then using this VR system it allows people to feel them and get the sensation. Now, firstly... How good really is that haptic feedback? 128 levels of vibration. For me, that doesn't feel like touch. I, I, now, I haven't used these, so I, I'm willing to be uh, convinced. But I don't see how that can have anything near the sensation of the real thing. I think it's being uh, dumbed down or it's just, no, it's not going to feel like the real thing. For me, far better would be to okay, you've laser scanned it. Now let's just recreate, physically recreate that sculpture so people can go up to it, feel it. In, in, in reality, why are we mucking around with haptic feedback? I'm glad that you said that, Sean, because there are museums around the world that are using 3D printed models to do exactly that. I recently shared a story on the Life After Blindness Facebook and Twitter feeds about some art in Chile where they were doing an art expo and they had relief type uh, examples of the art so you could feel the reliefs. They had 3D scans of, of different statues and things. And a lot of museums are doing that, especially if you have like a, a very, very large statue, a life-size statue of, of a person or something like that, or something that's you know, even larger that you can't access, they will scan it and make a 3D printed smaller version for you to feel to get an idea of what it's like. So that is being done. And I absolutely agree with you. I think that that's probably a better idea at least right now because i think vr is so much in the early days absolutely could this be something eventually 5 10 20 years from now we'll be doing this at home we won't necessarily even have to go to the museum we could have our own haptic gloves at home and, and log into our own vr system and i know we have those now they are available with with from the different companies but what i'm saying is eventually when they get better where the, the sense of touch does feel real and i agree that maybe it doesn't quite feel realistic now but this is only the beginning, I think. I think this is early days, and eventually we could do something like this from our home and visit museums in a virtual-type reality where we can feel these things, and it will, will seem real. But in the meantime, uh, I do agree that I think a 3D-printed model or some sort of relief model or something like that is a lot better tactically for us at this point. But again, I'm not upset that they're trying this because eventually this could be the way to go. Yeah, exactly. As I said, the interesting part of this story for me is the technology itself. Let's see how real we can get this haptic feedback and this technology laser scanning. Of course, it's really interesting. But for me, look, high tech isn't always the best uh, solution for everything. And it makes far more sense, even if you don't 3D print it. I mean, even if you just did a, a, a plaster, you know, take a mold of it, you got the scan there, whatever. Just make a physical copy of the sculpture that you can really get hands-on with. For me, that makes far more sense than trying to go high-tech, gadgety, and does it really give you that sensation of feeling the real thing? I don't think so. Well, like we said, this is early days, and it may not be quite there yet, but eventually it very well could be. And we could see this being something that's used not just in museums, but 
We can see this being something that's used in schools or at higher level educations at university when you're training you know, doctors. They could do things virtually maybe or kids could do dissection virtually. I know that's kind of the, the way that they're going to go, even just for sighted kids or sighted people. So for blind and visually impaired people, this could be a major thing eventually. So I do agree from that standpoint that eventually it will be the way to go. Of course, VR is going gonna, is gonna to happen. I mean, it already has happened. We got it at a consumer level already. But the next level is this true immersion. And for that, you, you're going to need, you know, it's not just the visuals, it's the audio, it's the, the touch, it's everything. You know, I want the haptic trousers, trust me. But it, it will happen, but it's not there yet. And I'm not, <laughs> not interested. touching that in so many different ways. <laughs> I'm not interested until it actually works. So, uh, yeah, we'll wait and see. Absolutely. As many people know, and as you know, Sean, I, I'm a big fan of the novel Ready Player One. I've read it like six times. I've seen the movie twice. <laughs> yes. So for me, you know, VR, I, I mean, I, wow. Yeah. Well, Sean, we're going to leave the news right there this week, but I want to thank you so much for coming on and talking through these technology related news stories on Life After Blindness. And uh, yeah, thanks so much for being on and I look forward to seeing you again. Thank you, Tim. Always a chore, never a pleasure. <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> Thanks, Sean. Thanks, mate. Again, you can hear more tech news each and every week from Sean Priest, Stephen Scott, and myself by listening to Tech Talk on RNIB Radio in the UK and Double Tap on AMI-audio in Canada. Speaking of technology, you may have heard a lot about a new system-wide keyboard for iOS called FlickType. If you're not familiar with FlickType, you may be more familiar with it under the name of its predecessor, Flexi. Well, I sat down with the developers of FlickType to talk with them about their new monthly fee model, as well as the development of the app and so many other things to learn more about FlickType and its future. So here's my interview with Costa and Ashley, the developers of FlickType. Joining me for the interview this week are the developers of an app that I know everyone in the blindness and visually impaired community have been talking about for several months now. It's very, very popular amongst all of us, and they have been gracious enough to come on the show and talk with me about all kinds of things relating to their app, the development, the background, the future, everything in between. They are the developers of FlickType, Costa and Ashley Elefterio. Costa, Ashley, thanks for coming to the show. Thank you, Tim. Thank you for having us. Now, you guys have a bit of a history with this app, with FlickType, because FlickType isn't your first foray into iOS development, not even your first foray, foray into just specifically into apps. So if, if you could, tell me a little bit about your background. What got you into doing apps and specifically into doing apps for the, or an app for the visually impaired? Certainly. So I've been an app developer ever since the um, App Store came out, which was 10 years ago, I think. The anniversary was recently. And uh, back then, I was really amazed at all this new functionality of the hardware, the device, the touchscreen, speakers, accelerometer, and all that. At the same time, I remember that typing just felt quite hard, like much harder than what we were used to from other devices with hardware keyboards. So as an engineer, I was also kind of thinking of different ways that I just felt like it's definitely possible to improve this. And uh, also having a family member that's low vision, my, uh, my father has lost sight from one of his eyes and has a glaucoma, his other eye as well. Um, I always was trying to figure out ways to kind of raise the bar a lot and make a system that wouldn't even require visual 
uh, input from the user. So that's that's uh, kind of like what led to the development of uh, Flexi back then and FlickType today. And and for me, I actually started right out of college in the marketing and advertising world. And shortly after that, I met Costa, which was almost a decade ago. And he was working on some interesting an interesting app. So that's how I kind of got involved in app development. Um, but what really led me to wanting to work on uh, text input, particularly Flexi and now FlickType, is you know working in the marketing advertising world, which I only did for a very short time. But it, I really wanted to do something that's helpful, and I really wanted to do something that makes a difference in people's lives. And so that's why we decided to come back to FlickType after Flexi a few years ago. And you know, typing is something that everybody does, and actually everybody does very often uh, throughout the day. So even if you can improve this by a little bit, it would make a big difference. And we hear with FlickType, people are typing three or four times faster than they used to. So we're so excited about that. Absolutely. And I know the blind and visually impaired community is excited by it. Even sighted people, I think, are excited by it because in all honesty, I think that it's it's not just maybe for people that are blind and visually impaired. It, it there could be an argument that sighted people could use it as well. Now, I do want to take a step back because I think it's really cool that, you know, 10 years ago, Costa, you know, you find the app store and you're doing development for that. And about the same time, Ashley comes into your life. So it's like, okay, I'm developing apps and I got Ashley in my life now. And it's just kind of this, you know, it's a cycle together that, that you know, brought you guys together and doing this now. So that that's really cool. And you did mention Flexi. Now let's, let's talk a little bit about Flexi and that history. Cause there are people in the blind and visually impaired community. I know that they loved Flexi. A lot of us like myself put money into Flexi and it was fantastic. And FlickType, for people listening, believe it or not, FlickType's even better than Flexi even ever was. Tell me a little bit about that history of Flexi, because some people may or may not know what had happened there, the development of it, and then how it kind of went away, and then what brought you to uh, FlickType now today. Certainly. And actually, this does tie uh, to whether or not Flexi or FlickType um, are technologies that should also be or can be used by sighted people. So as a matter of fact, Flexi was the first incarnation of like a better way, a faster way to type that did not require the user to uh, see the screen necessarily. Um, and um, this this is a, an interesting challenge. Obviously, like um, I don't think anybody thinks that it's easy, and I didn't even know if it was possible. But it turns out there is a very kind of unique way that we touch the screen when we type. Like every word has sort of a unique fingerprint to it, if you want. Sure. So, so it doesn't matter what key you press. Instead, the locations of where you touch the screen are what tells the system, um, you know, what, what, what could be the word that you were uh, going for. So with uh, Flexi, um, initially, we launched a version that was only for the visually uh, uh, impaired community. And as a matter of fact, back then, you even had to turn VoiceOver off in order to use it. Uh, it was a standalone app. It was not like nicely integrated into the system because of the lack of available uh, iOS APIs at the time. Now, I think we all know that uh, the market for products that are for users who are blind or, or uh, low vision is not as big as the mainstream market. So as a result, very often the product, these products have much higher price points, which um, I think is a big problem also for the makers of these products because they also uh, prevent a lot of users that would 
buy them or use them from actually doing that. So having a lot of pressure to make this uh, sustainable back then, Flexi, the, the company and the product, eventually we resorted uh, to seeking out external funding. So venture capital came into the company. And with that came a lot of uh, responsibility and a, and a lot of expectation to kind of broaden our reach and, and target sighted users and pretty much everyone. And now this may not be very obvious, but there is a big difference in the expectations uh, of, of users that can see and see well versus, versus users that cannot. In that users that can see, they really expect that uh, for the most part, the keys that they touched on are going to be the keys and the letters that they get in their output. Whereas a, a blind person, let's say, for example, and in particular with, uh, with FlickType, uh, doesn't actually even get feedback as to what key they pressed. It's just all about the pattern. So it's a little bit different to what you might be used to, but uh, it relies on the standard query layout. So that meant that um, we were trying to cater the same product to such a wide audience that it was not actually as feasible or as easy. Eventually, we had to kind of um, put a fork on the road and, and say, okay, at least for some time until we get everything right, we're going to have a special dedicated version of Flexi for the visually impaired community and at the same time continue with our mainstream product. So we kind of broke that down into two apps. Um, for, for that reason and many other reasons, I think, the name also was unfortunate, Flexi VO uh, at the time. There was a lot of backlash from the visually impaired community and eventually it just became, other than the hard technical challenges, it became hard to get uh, kind of uh, people to, uh, to be pushing from within the company and agree that we need to be catering and improving the version for everyone, not just uh, for the mainstream audience. Uh, but so that being so difficult, eventually we had to kind of like stop being... Uh, spread so thin and ultimately and very unfortunately take down the version that we could no longer support for the visually impaired. And at the same time, the, the version for sighted people also had a host of problems. And in in the end, we, we ended up having a product that did not satisfy either of the two groups, uh, really, uh, in the way that we envisioned from the very beginning. So this is something that's very different with the uh, flick type this time around. Like we're, we're not seeking any external funding. We're not even targeting or going to be targeting ever um, users that just can see, uh, you know, uh, are sighted and, 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 and use mainstream products. Like we would not want to do that. And I know that some people might feel like there shouldn't be necessarily products that are only for blind or visually impaired people, but uh, we kind of learned from that mistake, and I don't think it applies to all situations, but in our case, it, it turns out to be that uh, a, a keyboard is, is just quite different in terms of how people perceive it and, and expect it to function when they see and when they uh, cannot see. Or, or simply if they're not looking at the screen, so let's say I can see and I'm typing, um, there are times where I feel like I, I would like to keep typing without looking at the screen, but then that really means that the the underlying mechanics need to change, and that's that's quite tricky to actually get it right. And I and I just want to iterate here that during this entire time, this caused not only an external conflict for Flexi, but also a huge internal conflict for Post and I, because we set out to do something that was going to be extremely helpful and making a difference in people's lives, and we ended up not being able to fulfill that goal. 
And knowing knowing that background, then that really does explain quite a bit of the issues that were happening with you guys internally and, and trying to make sure that you were creating and developing an app that did everything and everything that you wanted it to do. And like you said, even splitting it in half. And it makes sense what you say about sighted people using it. I think you'd almost you'd almost have to have them turn the screen off in a way and just throw all their expectations out the window and just trust the app. And I think you're right that there might be some side of people that could maybe do that. But on, on, on the majority, I don't know that that would be very easy to do because, well, you can see. So you're going to want to use what you have. And and if you see those letters on the screen, you're going to say, hey, hey, I, I hit that area. Why, why isn't it doing it? So that makes sense. And I, I think you're right that in some cases, it makes sense to say, you know what, we're going to try to broaden the scope of this and make it for as many people as we can, sighted or, or blind alike. That being said, there are times where it also makes sense to narrow that focus and say, you know what, we're going to make this specifically for this group because that's what it works best for. So I think that explanation actually makes some sense. Now, in that time from the flexi days to now, you were talking about you know the internal struggle and, and things going on between the two of you and then between the two apps and, and the investment and all of that. Did you ever feel any of the backlash from the blind and visually impaired community? Because not to your own fault, especially considering you, what you've just explained, but did you ever feel any of that backlash from the community saying, hey, wait a minute, we had this tool. Some of us even paid for it. What happened? Where is it? What's going on? Yeah, definitely. And in fact, um, as I mentioned previously, there was backlash even from uh, before it was uh, it stopped being available to them. Um, even just from the the split itself into a separate app, there was a lot of backlash. And um, a lot of people in the company felt it too. And it was hard to motivate people to just keep working uh, on this when, you know, some people felt like uh, the community was not grateful, essentially. But what I think is the case is that you're always going to have uh, a few people that are going to be more vocal, and, and I truly understand the sentiment here, especially when it was effectively taken down. Um, that you know, why did you do this to us? This is not right, and uh, we want it, and we want it this way, uh, and, and all that. So, in many ways, what we're doing now, uh, what we've done already in the past few months, is take that product as it was, the the, the unfortunately named Flexi VO app, and bring it back as FlickType free so everybody can use it you don't have to pay you can just use it and type and export your text to whatever app you want copy paste or whatever you want to do with it um but additionally we finally realized the dream of making that a system-wide keyboard which is this time around is, is what is uh something we're charging for and I think that model does make some sense. As you both know, I even personally had some questions about that myself when we first had the announcement of the membership model and paying per month. But in my correspondence with uh, Ashley and, and talking with you both and understanding that process, I think it does make some sense now. Like you said, you do have the the separate third-party app for it. So if people want to type in there using the FlickType technology and they want to export it or, or copy and paste the text somewhere else, they can do that. And that's entirely free. And I think that's fantastic because even with that, people will say, oh, well, by the time I copy and paste and take it over, I could have just done it in the app. Well, that, those are people I think that maybe haven't used the app because even taking the time to export it out or copy and paste it out, I think you're still doing it much faster than you would have in the original app itself. And then to go ahead and say, okay, well, 
let's take that a step further and offer it as a system-wide keyboard and have a monthly charge for that. I believe there is a seven-day free trial, but then once that's over, you do pay a, a monthly fee. That I, I, I do understand now, and that makes some sense to me from what you've described. And I think it's it's really nice, and, I, and I'm hoping the community gets this this point that, yes, there were some internal struggles with Flexi and there were some issues with Flexi, but the both of you felt it was important to bring this back and find a way to make it work for the community and have, like you said, a free section, a paid section, and truly focus on all of it and make it work almost in a way to make up for the flexi days, but just to make sure that it worked to fulfill what you set out to do with this app. Uh, yeah, I would say that that was a lot of our main goal when we came back. I mean, we're, we're married, by the way. So I was going to say we came back together, but we decided to move forward again with this project. And one of the first things we said is we need to be able to make this as accessible as possible. And with that, we want to provide a solution that everyone has access to, no matter their background or personal situation. And so that's why having a standalone app out there free is going to be something that's going to always, always going to be available to everyone. Yeah, as the, as the bare minimum. And then actually, uh, to tie it back to this idea of uh, broadening the scope and the market reach from the flexi days. So uh, this is actually in part why we're doing this uh, subscription model, which uh, I understand that it's somewhat controversial. And and I think there's arguments from both sides, but I'd like to, to give um, kind of like our side of this and 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 make sure everybody's aware also of like the side of for developers. So sure. Um, in terms of expanding your, or rather, in, in terms of thinking about revenue, right? You might uh, say, oh, developers just want to uh, maximize their revenue and, you know, they're uh, greedy that way and whatnot. Now, if you think about revenue, this is really the product and the multiple of the number of users you have times some amount that you generate as revenue from a user, whether that's subscription or a, or a one-off purchase. Now, since it's two pieces, you can think of, uh, ways that expand just how many people can potentially get it and purchase it as something that increases your revenue without increasing the cost to it for each user individually. So we thought, and we thought long and hard about this, how do we do this in a way that um, is also going to be sustainable for our business? Because we're not a, a large business that, you know, we're generating a ton of revenue and we're just looking to squeeze a little bit more and a little bit more all the time. We're... Um, we're at the starting point where uh, this is a lot to do about even the app surviving. You know, we want to make sure this is sustainable so that the community can benefit from that. So the, the best way for us to lower the entry cost so that as many people as possible can actually use it has been to have what is almost the smallest possible uh, subscription charge that you're going to have as a monthly charge. So this makes it just so much more affordable to so many more people. And I think one um, of your listeners in, in uh, your show actually mentioned that they, they got in the user and they like it. And uh, they thought that if it was something like 10 or $15, then uh, they probably would not have actually bought it. So we, we really think this is the way for us uh, to move forward with this and make sure that it's not another app that, that goes away. Yeah, I think it's a really important point because within the blind and visually impaired community, we've had a lot of apps 
that have done that. And I know, of course, you you were familiar with your own, you know, Flexi experience, but then there's been games and other apps that we have enjoyed and have been spectacular. And then because of funding or lack thereof or other structural issues with the development companies, they just weren't sustainable, whether that was because it was a one-time purchase and then there was no further revenue after that or whether it was something else. There's been one too many times, unfortunately, for, for this community where we find these apps that we just love that are great for us, whether, like I said, it's a productivity app or a game or whatever it is, and all of a sudden... Well, it's gone six months, a year, whatever it is later, it's gone. And the community feels burned, I think, in a way. And it's like, it's not your fault specifically as a developer. It's no one's exact fault. It's just that overall feeling, I think, in the community of, oh, every time we find something we really like, it it goes, it goes away. It's almost like you go to the, when you go to the grocery store and there's that one thing that you always buy and you love it and you, you buy that food all the time. And then you go again and they say, oh no, we don't carry that anymore. It, it's discontinued. You're like, what? That was our favorite thing to buy. You know, what happened? It's that same kind of feeling. And, uh, and so I think it's really great that, the two of you said, you know what, we're going to come back to this. We want to make this better. We want to develop this better and take it to a new level and really narrow the focus and, and do something with this better than even what we did before and find a way to make it sustainable. Because I think you're right. A, a one-time purchase sometimes isn't as sustainable. That's why a lot of companies I think have gone to in-app purchases or monthly fees because a one-time purchase might sustain you for a year or so. Whereas the monthly fee or in-app purchase type of model can sustain it obviously a lot longer. So I think that makes sense. And offering the free version as opposed to the the monthly version and giving the people the choice, I think that that, that really helps in that as well. Yeah. And I, and I would say, you know, we also, we empathize with the situation when something is just taken away. It's really disappointing and it seems like it happens out of nowhere. So another way that we also think of this monthly subscription is essentially like a monthly check-in or a monthly vote so that we as developers can figure out, are we doing a good job? Are we doing a bad job? If you, you know, if you unsubscribe, you're telling us that you're not happy with something. And if, if you say subscribe, then you're telling us that you are. So it gives us this ongoing feedback versus just that one time out of the gate fee where maybe they were happy with our presentation, but are they happy with what's going on now? And it also keeps that communication open so that there aren't going to be any of these big surprises where an app just suddenly goes out of business. Yeah, so effectively it makes our, our um, motivations like more aligned, uh, us as developers and the users. The same way it's more affordable for the user where they don't have to pay something up front. Uh, equivalently, the flip side of that, the, of the same coin for us, is that we have to keep trying hard to make sure that people just want to you know, remain on the app. Absolutely. And that is important because if people like the app and they want to use it, you want to keep them using it. And we want to keep the developers around so that we can keep using it. So there's that kind of circular experience where we want you to be able to continue thriving. And, and of course, as our as your users, you want us to continue using. So it, it is a good thing to, to have an understanding of, okay, here's our model. Here's what we're going to do and why. And then the users of the app can say, okay, we get that. We can either choose to pay or not and vote, like you said, Ashley, in a way to say, okay, I'm going to use it this month. And so I'll give my 99 cents, which we haven't pointed that out, but in the United States, it is just 99 cents per month. And so in the grand scheme of things, that's not really a whole lot of money. Exactly. Because this argument only goes up to point. If you're charging like, you know, $10 a month for something, then the argument just quickly fades away, I think. But uh, we think that the price is, is uh, quite reasonable. I did want to add one more thing, which is that I think 
um, subscriptions also, there's an argument um, about subscriptions that, you know, you might have subscriptions that you literally forget to cancel. Uh, why should I, why should the burden be on me as a user to kind of remember to cancel, let's say, if I didn't like it after my trial or whatever app that may be. Uh, and I do think that Apple should, and maybe at some point will add some feature where, uh, you know, it would automatically skip a billing cycle if the app was not used. Of course, that's going to be tricky for apps that also have some server-side costs. So even if you're not using it, you know, the developer has some cost. But uh, I would really like to see uh, this is kind of like, you know, pay as you go. But if you're not using it, then you don't pay. And the moment you start using it again, you pay. Uh, that, that just seems uh, more fair. And, you know, I would like to take this opportunity also and remind everyone to just check, you know, what your current subscriptions are and cancel anything that you're not using or you don't need. And with it being 99 cents, we're hoping that even if someone forgets about it for a month, that it's not one of those apps that cause this huge burden, you know, the $10, $12 a month apps that you forget about for a few months. That's a much bigger deal than 99 cents, um, and which is also why we thought this was a good price point. Absolutely. Yeah. Being 99 cents, you, you do find that if you forgot it for a month, you meant to cancel it and you didn't, well, you're only out 99 cents as opposed to $10, like you said. And so I think that that, that makes it a better model as well. Plus, I think that with the advent of iOS 12 and screen time, I agree with you, Kosa, that it's possible that they could say, okay, we're now able to track using the screen time feature how much you're in an app, how much you use an app, and all that kind of thing. Why couldn't it be that the next step would be, okay, you haven't used this app for a certain period of time, and you could opt into it maybe. I don't know how that would work, but to say, you know, we're now tracking that information with screen time, so if you don't use an app for a while, then yes, you would be automatically unsubscribed. If you start using it again for however many days or whatever it would be, you you could maybe be resubscribed. So I, I like that idea. I think that that's something that would be potentially good and, and very helpful. So we'll see if Apple ever does implement something like that. There's one more model also that I think we might see in the future, which is, and, and perhaps is the ideal model, uh, which would be combining the best of both worlds. So that would be essentially a finite dollar amount as cost, but one that is split over multiple kind of billing periods. So it's not, you know, forever. Um, and it's similar to paying for something with your credit card where you eventually get just monthly payments, but it's a set amount. So this model doesn't currently exist, though. So uh, and I'm sure there's uh, there's tricky parts uh, about it, but it might be another thing that we see in the future. Now, talking about the future, I do want to ask you both about the future of FlickType. But what you just said made me think of something that I know you're considering doing or might be doing. And that's as opposed to just the monthly fee for the app, you're considering maybe blocking that out or, or bundling that into either a group of months or maybe even doing an annual fee. Is that right? Yeah, that is right. So after hearing some feedback, actually, from your other your other show on Double Tap Canada, um, and also our users have given us some really valuable feedback we really want to be flexible in the payment structure and that's something that we've always agreed on from the very start when we when we identified what payment structure we would go with and so we we know that there's people that have to pay with iTunes gift cards and so that causes a bit of friction for them and it can be a little bit troublesome to do every month from what we hear and then some people are just they don't want to have another monthly subscription. I think it's like about forgetting about it. You feel like you're more in control of it. Some people just purely on principle prefer not to have a monthly subscription. Right. So we're, we're thinking about offering a yearly subscription 
to make it convenient for those folks. Absolutely. And it's just good, at least if nothing else, you're having that conversation and, and aware of the fact that that is something that could be done and could be helpful to certain people in certain situations. Because obviously not everybody falls into the same circumstances and some other options are, are better for some where there might not be for others. So I think it's great to, at least if nothing else, the fact that you're having that conversation. So that being said, then what does the future hold with our monthly subscriptions and the updates that you've been doing? And I know there there's some things going on in the beta tests right now that, that we're looking forward to seeing come out. So overall, then what would you say the overall goal and future of Flick Type is going to be? So I'd say that uh, the goal is to just get Flick Type in the hands of as many people as possible and, and get them to be using it as their daily driver, the daily keyboard. Uh, we, we see that the keyboard is just such a critical component of the phone and the experience you have with your device that um, we're just so excited to be part of, of, of this effectively, of like shaping how you use your phone and how productive you are and, and how valuable ultimately you think your device is. We hear already from people saying that uh, they're literally uh, switching to the iPhone from Android because of FlickType. Like it, it makes such a difference for them. So this is what kind of uh, keeps us going every, every day. We feel just the excitement of uh, the result of our work. And another thing, sorry to interrupt you, Gustav, but another thing that we think is incredible, people are literally writing books with FlickType on their devices, something they used to do on their computers. So now they're able to um, add to their book, you know, when they're on the train or the bus or in transit somehow, or just generally away from home without having to carry a Bluetooth keyboard. So for the future, uh, something that's really important is um, the more people use a product, uh, the better it becomes. It's not only the other way around, where the better it is, the more people will use it. It's actually, I think, a, a kind of a circle. So as more people are using it, and we see how they are using it and discovering through their stories, like what it is they're doing with it, we're going to effectively make it better and better for those use cases. Now, we've already uh, done a lot of improvements since the Flexi days. We've added what we call visual announcements, where everything that's spoken uh, by voiceover is also displayed on the screen in like the largest uh, possible high contrast text available so that we get a lot of low vision users to actually um, utilize the screen this way. We've added the cursor control, which was also not present in Flexi. We've added emoji. Uh, but really, there is a lot of work that is going to take place both under the hood in terms of like improving the word recognition engine, which is Ultimately, something that just never ends. There's always ways to make it better and better and uh, adapt to the way that you use it and use the words that you use the most. So if it's never used, for example, then you should just uh, learn that better and, and not suggest it. Uh, in addition, we will be adding at some point uh, more languages because right now it's only available in English and Spanish. And this is uh, actually, as we know from our experience, it's, it's uh, quite tricky because... Um, when you get down to the definitions of even like what is a word and what should be in the dictionary, it's not everyone will agree what's a word that should be in the dictionary or not. So uh, this is uh, kind of harder than it might seem at first. But we want to add more languages. Um, we want to make it more efficient, you know, and, and require less memory and all that. But um... also do things like word completion. I think Costa's point is that we actually keep our roadmap public. We have so many ideas that we just want to constantly be developing and improving this with the help of the community. We constantly ask our community, what do you want to, 
what do you want next? You know, what is the priority for you? And we really try to develop based on those priorities. So, yeah, what we're not going to do is add, you know, every single uh, feature request or idea of our own that we have, because that really is the path to, to lose focus uh, and lose track of what really matters. So, yeah, the, the um, word completion is a very interesting one. It's also quite hard uh, technically, but uh, it, it's probably going to be very useful. So as soon as you start typing, you know, quite a few taps into the word, if it's a long word, which is the word that usually takes the longest to type, will just automatically uh, suggest it for you. Uh, other things are things like uh, text replacement shortcuts. So if anyone's not aware, there's, there's ways on the iPhone to just assign, you know, a few two, three, four characters that are kind of like a special word that if you type those, then they expand to something like your entire email address or your actual physical address or something like that. Um, we're going to be doing iCloud syncing with a dictionary. Uh, we're probably going to be upgrading a little bit the, the sounds and sound effects that I think are pretty crucial to, to a good overall experience. Uh, maybe offer customization options for both sounds and maybe a little bit on, on the looks, like different high contrast themes and uh, things of that nature. So, yeah, nothing exactly certain, but we have so much to do um, and, and, and so many ideas, both from the community and our own ideas, that uh, it's just a matter of prioritizing those correctly. And we really need the help of the community for that. So... Uh, please keep sending us feedback as well as ideas, and we'll, we're literally trying to incorporate everything uh, that, that we deem you know, is impactful for most people as quickly as possible. That sounds fantastic. Sounds like the future of FlickType in this case is uh, going to be very busy and very fulfilling and rich. And uh, there's a lot of things that, that we're looking forward to seeing come come down the pike from FlickType. So I'm I'm eager to see where this goes and, and what you do development-wise going forward. All those features sound fantastic. I love the text replacement feature. That's one of my favorite things to use with a lot of things that I have to type all the time. Uh, that would be fantastic. So that brings me then to to talking about you communicating with, with people within the community and, and getting that feedback. If people want to reach out to you guys and, and talk with you or, or get more information about FlickType, how can they go about doing that? So um, the best way is to actually join our discussion. We have a group on groups.io. It's hello at flicktype.groups.io. And you can send whatever suggestions or questions you have there. And the nice part of this is if you ever have an issue, our, all of our users are really quick to respond and help troubleshoot with whatever issue you have because maybe they've had that issue in the past or they just have experience with that. So it seems to be a very efficient way to both give us information but also to fix whatever issues you may run into. And then for uh, pretty much most of the product information, you can get that at uh, flicktype.com. And we also have a Twitter account. You can follow us at FlickType, where we basically uh, announce, you know, all the or our latest news. Or sometimes we ask questions, do polls, and engage with the community this way. Very good. I appreciate you guys engaging with the community that way. FlickType on Twitter is a great place to follow because you guys are on there all the time, it seems, giving information out. So I encourage everybody to check out FlickType.com, follow you guys on Twitter, and uh, join the discussion and, and lend your voice to Costa and Ashley and help FlickType continue to do what it's doing. And so Costa and Ashley, I want to thank you guys so much for being on the show and, and giving us your time and all this information about FlickType. 
Thank you. We really appreciate it, Tim. It was nice chatting with Thank you. Thank you, Tim. It's been a pleasure. On last week's episode, I shared with all of you a very kind email that was sent in by Rachel. Rachel closed out her email by asking me if I had any information about how to get started with Braille screen input on iOS. I did a little bit of reading and some research, and I was able to find out how to get started. So I thought I'd share with all of you the information that I found in this week's T3. T3 initiated. There are so many different ways that you can enter text into your iPhone. You can, of course, use standard touch typing, dictation, third-party apps like FlickType, or even use third-party hardware devices to input text using Braille. But did you know that Apple has a built-in accessibility feature that allows you to enter text using an on-screen Braille keyboard? Well, it does, and here's how to get started with it. To enable Braille screen input on your iPhone, simply open your Settings app, Navigate to General, then Accessibility, then VoiceOver, and then Rotor. Once you are in the Rotor options, scroll down the list until you find Braille Screen Input and select it. You can move Braille Screen Input up and down the list in order to reorder it depending on where you want it to appear within your Rotor options. If you move Braille Screen Input to the very top of the list, it will always appear as the very first option when you turn your rotor immediately clockwise. Now that you have enabled Braille Screen Input on your iPhone, you will want to set your default code. To do this, open Settings, navigate to General, Accessibility, VoiceOver, and then Braille. Once you are in the Braille section, Look for the button labeled Braille Screen Input. Note that the currently selected code will show up next to the Braille Screen Input button. Select this button and you can now choose from a list of uncontracted or contracted Braille codes. You are now set up to use Braille Screen Input on your iPhone. Simply press three fingers from your left hand and three fingers from your right hand together on the screen of your iPhone. The device may ask you to calibrate where your fingers are placed for better accuracy. To begin using Braille screen input, you'll either need to be on the home screen, in a web browser, or be editing a text field. Then simply turn the rotor until you hear Braille screen input. Once you have switched to Braille screen input, you'll be told the current input mode, the type of Braille in use, and that you are now in landscape mode. When you are on the home screen, you can type the first letter of an app in order to bring up a list of apps that begin with that letter. And when you are in a web browser, you can type letters like H for headings or B for buttons in order to navigate more easily through the headings, buttons, or other types of content within the web page. There are also many gestures that you'll want to become familiar with when using Braille input mode. A one-finger swipe right will input a space. A one-finger swipe to the left will delete the most recent character typed. A one-finger swipe up or one-finger swipe down will access typing suggestions, will also access the apps that you are looking for on your home screen, or access the different types of content when you are on a website. A two-finger swipe to the left will delete the previous word, and a two-finger swipe to the right will create a new line. 
In contracted mode only, you can swipe down with two fingers to immediately translate the current word. Swiping with three fingers to the left or to the right will toggle between contracted and uncontracted braille. If you press and hold one finger on the screen for just a couple of seconds, this will enter explore mode, which will allow you to explore around the screen with one finger in order to find the placement of the different dots. If you engage the rotor gesture and move either clockwise or counterclockwise to any other rotor option, this will automatically exit braille screen input mode. And finally, by using the two finger scrub gesture, which is done by using two fingers and moving them back and forth in the shape of a Z, will automatically exit Braille screen input mode as well. And now you are ready to begin using the built-in Braille screen input features of the iPhone. Before I go, I just wanted to mention that my good friend Derek Daniel, host of the Life After Sight Loss podcast, has recently posted a video to YouTube talking all about the interview that I conducted recently with author Carol Decker. If you haven't heard that interview, please check that out. You can visit lifeafterblindness.com slash Carol Decker. That's D-E-C-K-E-R. Or you can just look for the bonus episode of the Life After Blindness Spotlight in the podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts. In this YouTube video, Derek asks the question, why? Why do we do the things that we do? Why do we make the choices that we make? In the case of Carol Decker, whom I interviewed, she made the choice to live a more beautiful life because of her family and especially because of her children. She could have given up, but she wanted to continue. She wanted her journey to go on so that she could have that beautiful life with her children. So I encourage you to check out Derek's newest YouTube video, to hear his opinions about the interview, again, you can find him at lifeaftersightloss.com or search for him on YouTube, Derek Daniel, or just search for Life After Sight Loss. Well, that will do it for episode number 26 of the Life After Blindness podcast. I want to thank you so much again for taking the time to listen. As always, you can send your questions or comments to me by email. Send those to tim at lifeafterblindness.com and visit the show notes for this episode by going to lifeafterblindness.com slash 26. And if you could, please take a moment to rate and review Life After Blindness within Apple Podcasts. Please join me again next week as together we continue our journey to find that there truly can be a life after blindness. Take care, everybody. Mm -hmm.